0: This week in our series of the trees of the Bible, we'll be reading from Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the, way, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, is one of North America's most ubiquitous poems. Even those people who remember virtually nothing of high school literature will recognize the first and the last lines of this poem. It starts, two roads diverged in a yellow woods. It ends, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Critic David Orr chronicles the huge number of times and ways this poem shows up in North American culture. It's found on coffee mugs, on refrigerator magnets, and grad speeches, not to mention just about any Instagram post of a path going through the woods. This poem has been recited in advertisements for Mentos, for nicotine gum, for insurance companies, and car companies, even a Super Bowl commercial. In just the last 35 years, the language from this poem has been used over 2,000 times in news stories worldwide. That's more than once a day. But as David Orr observes, perhaps the most remarkable thing about this poem is not its popularity but it's that just about everybody gets it wrong. It's popular for all the wrong reasons. Two roads diverge and I took the one less traveled by. It's hailed as a triumph of self-assertion, a sentimental celebration of courage, of choosing to do the hard thing when everyone else was doing the easy thing. But as Frost was fond of telling his readers, you have to be careful of that one, he'd say. It's a tricky poem, very tricky. If you read the middle of the poem more closely, you notice that actually the two paths are really the same. Both that morning equally lay. These paths are interchangeable. And in fact, Frost reportedly wrote this poem to tease his chronically indecisive friend. He lamented the fact that, by and large, people missed the joke. The sentimental message at the end is really about self-deception. The road taken was not really the road less traveled. So now having properly questioned the popular power of these two roads through the yellow wood, let me commend to you another poem with two roads. Psalm 1, which we just read. This poem is decidedly not intended to be a teasing joke, and the two paths in this poem are certainly not interchangeable. One path, the path of the wicked, winds through a wheat field at the height of summer when the sun is oppressively hot and bright and dry dirt turns to dust underfoot. The grain has been harvested and only the brittle stalk is left. It's meant to be a desolate picture of a path. Those who walk along it are the wicked, the sinners, those who mock the instruction of the Lord. They are destined to be blown away by the wind. They're like the chaff, the part of the wheat that was disposable, not good for anything. It's that light shell around the wheat that would be blown away by the wind when it was tossed in the air, leaving just the edible grain behind. And the cistern that holds the irrigation water for this field has grown stagnant. The roots of the leftover stalk are drying up and dying. The whole scene and those who walk along it are perishing, heading towards death. The other path, the path of the righteous, is shady and cool and pleasant. It's lined with trees, trees with deep roots that connect to the life source to a river with its supply of fresh water this path is full of life and flourishing those who walk along it are the righteous those who delight in god's instruction and who mull over the law of the lord all day long they are like those trees with deep roots connected to a source of life, bearing fruit when the season is ripe and growing green leaves. The water supply is always fresh, it's never stagnant. The roots of the trees are thick and healthy. The whole scene is flourishing, full of life, even prospering. The trees are resilient and the path is under the watchful, caring eye of the Lord. These two ways stand in stark contrast to each other. There is no ambiguity between them, so be careful to choose the right one. It would seem that one leads to certain death, and the other to constant or perpetual prosperity. There is no gray area in this poem. It seems to be, unlike Robert Frost's poem, not a tricky poem at all. Chaff or a tree, perishing or prospering. Don't hang out with the bad people. That almost certainly leads you down the wrong path. Do read your Bible more and obey the law of the Lord. That leads you down the good path. Whatever you do will prosper. Well, that's what the Bible says, right? Well, yes. And then no. In this very book of the Bible, this song book of God's people, it seems like things maybe aren't always as cut and dry as Psalm 1 makes them out to be. Elsewhere in the Psalms, we see that the righteous are attacked, threatened, even persecuted. That's not exactly our picture of prosperity. At the same time, the wicked visibly prosper. The composer of Psalm 73 writes about this. He says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens, and they're not plagued by human ills. He goes on, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They go on accumulating wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. So what's with this guy, this composer of the songbook of God's people? Was he just having a bad day in Psalm 73? Was he not meditating on the instruction of the Lord enough? Was he not righteous enough? Something doesn't seem to fit here. The testimony of Psalm 1 seems to be at odds with the lived experience of God's people at certain times. And I think, if we're quite honest, The testimony of Psalm 1 seems to stand at odd with our lived experience at times. I'm American, so you'll indulge a a political illustration here. You might recall that during the last U.S. presidential election, Donald Trump was so confident he would win that he joked he could stand in the middle of. Times Square in New York and shoot somebody and quote, I wouldn't lose any voters, he said. Despite the way he spoke about minorities and women, despite the way he broke and continues to break just about every norm of civility, despite his unchecked inability to receive instruction or criticism, just about whatever he does works out for him. Or at least he seems to have a knack for telling people that whatever he does prospers. It's a bit uncanny, actually. He is just an exaggerated case of the phenomenon that many of us have experienced in our own lives. The logic of Psalm 1, the logic of the two paths, just doesn't seem to hold up all that well in the real world. I mean, just because you do devotions every morning, it doesn't mean that you're getting a promotion every year at your job. You may struggle to know the right thing to do when your group of friends want you to sneak out behind your parents' back, do something you know you really shouldn't do, but your friends are not burdened at all by that decision, and they seem to be having all the fun without you. And of course... We know cancer doesn't seem to mind one bit if you've sufficiently meditated on the law of the Lord. And infertility does not somehow prefer the so-called wicked. In fact, it may seem like the psalmist describes in Psalm 73, the wicked have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. So what's going on with Psalm 1? Whatever the righteous one does will prosper, it says, and the wicked will perish. Maybe this poem is more like Frost's poem after all. Just a trick. An empty assurance to those righteous people who are missing out on all the fun and money. But of course it can't be right. God's own spirit breathes truth into these words. So if that truth is not that reading your Bible and loving God gives you health and wealth, then what truth does Psalm 1 really tell us? I think the truth is in the roots. Our eyes move quickly to the trees roots and leaves that can be a sight to behold. But perhaps the whole point of the metaphor begins underground. Now the roots of a tree are important for a number of reasons. The roots act as an anchor for the tree so that it can't be pulled out of the ground or blown over very easily. But the roots also absorb and store water and food for the tree in the dry, arid environment, like the one the Israelites were living in, there's virtually no rain from the months of April to October. Of course, that's different than where we live, where there's some kind of water falling out of the sky every month of the year. In our environment trees can grow just about anywhere, in the middle of a field, on a hill, in your backyard, by a river. But in a dry, arid place like ancient Israel, trees really thrived best near rivers, because these rivers gave the trees a steady supply of fresh water during the dry season. The roots connect the tree to its source of life. This tree doesn't need to depend on the seasonal rains or on a cistern that was dug. It has a steady source of life right on hand, which grows the roots, anchors the tree, and gives it the water it needs to produce fruit and leaves. And so we're probably missing the big point of this psalm if we read it as saying that God somehow rewards our obedience with material health or success. The prosperity of the righteous here is not so much a reward as it is a result of life's connection with the source of life. It's an openness to God and a connectedness with God that sustains us, even in dry seasons. Now, when we read about delighting in the law of the Lord in this psalm, we should not understand law in a narrow kind of way, as if it just refers to the Ten Commandments or the holiness codes that we might be familiar with. Though the law more broadly refers to all of God's instruction. For the Israelites, law was shorthand for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It contains rules, certainly, but it also contains stories, rules about how to live, but also stories that reminded them of who they are and who God is. So for us, the equivalent of the law in this psalm is really the sacred tradition of God's whole revelation in the Bible. The righteous one delights in and meditates on God's whole revelation because it's a life-giving gift, not a system of rewards and punishments, The righteous one delights in and meditates on the law of the Lord, not because the law itself brings salvation, you'll remember from last week, but because it reveals the God of salvation, the author of life, the one who has graciously shown us the way people ought to live in his very own creation. My professor, Paul Wilson, once told my class, about the day his grandmother found out that her husband had unexpectedly passed away. She was a strong, faithful woman of God and a preacher's wife. Her husband would often write his sermons from home. He'd shut away himself away in his office and his study for hours and insist he not be interrupted. So on one day like this, he had shut the door to his study and opened up his Bible, taken out his pen and paper and began to prepare for Sunday. His wife didn't hear from him for a few hours. This was normal. As she was preparing lunch, though, she called him to come and eat, and he didn't answer. So she went upstairs to the study to get him, and as she put her hand on the doorknob, she heard Paul's words from 2 Corinthians. My grace is sufficient for thee, She had heard and meditated on these words from 2 Corinthians many times before. And in that moment, God spoke them to her again. As she opened the door to find her husband had unexpectedly passed away as he worked on his sermon. She testified to her family that those words of God sustained her and stabilized her in that horribly difficult moment. And in the many moments of grief that followed. My grace is sufficient for thee, she would hear again and again. She was a tree planted by the stream, that is God's living word, spoken to her in a difficult moment by God's own spirit. She grieved, but she did not wither. Her testimony of God's grace continues to bear fruit in her family and well beyond. That is the prosperity that Psalm 1 talks about. That is the prosperity of the righteous. Prosperity of the righteous may not mean that you'll get every job promotion or every scholarship. But it does mean that God will sustain your sense of vocation and calling in your work. The prosperity of the righteous may not mean that you get to do whatever your friends want you to do, but it does mean that God gives long-lasting joy, contentedness, even delight. The prosperity of the righteous may not mean that you and your family will remain in good health until the day you die, but it does mean that God draws you near to himself and speaks to you of the hope of resurrection. The prosperity of the righteous means that you are like a tree planted by living water, whose roots soak up the life-giving water that is God's own instruction given to you by the Holy Spirit. And so this poem, Psalm 1, it turns out is no trick at all. It speaks to us of the true kind of prospering. Not the temporary prosperity that the world might offer, but a more deep and abiding prosperity of life that is rooted in a river of living water. Thanks be to God for this great gift. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, the gift of your word and the way your spirit works through these words to strengthen our roots, to bring us life and hope. We pray now for the strength to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all.